It's Tuesday, December 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Moderna has now become the second company to request emergency use authorization from the FDA for their vaccine candidate. In their latest findings, the vaccine is over 94% effective against coronavirus and very effective at preventing serious cases of the virus. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for more as we get closer to vaccine approvals. Next, President-elect Joe Biden continues to formulate his team as he makes his way through the transition. Over the weekend, he named an all-female communications team and on Monday announced his senior economic team, where Janet Yellen will be nominated to be the first female Treasury Secretary. Not all of his nominees will be slam dunks to be confirmed, but they all have experience and respect in their respective fields. Kate Davidson, economic policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for who's on the economic team and the challenges they will face. Finally, as we see cases of coronavirus rise and new lockdowns and restrictions imposed, restaurants are feeling the brunt of it and defying orders to close down. Feeling like scapegoats, many are worried that these continued restrictions will put them out of business. Lawsuits have also been filed against the restrictions with limited success. Heather Haddon, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the pandemic continues to squeeze the restaurant industry. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So today, indeed, we're going to be filing to the FDA for emergency use authorization. It's the first time in the company history that we file for commercial approval of a product. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. More good news on the vaccine front. Every Monday, we've been getting these updates. (laughs) Moderna has become the second company to request emergency use authorization from the FDA for its vaccine candidate. They released some new findings in their latest press release. The effectiveness of this is still above 94% effective against COVID. So Karen, tell us a little bit more about what we learned with these latest findings. So they totaled 196 people in their clinical trial out of 30,000 have now gotten COVID. And of those 196, so half the people in the 30,000 person trial half got the placebo and half got the active arm, the active vaccine. Of 196 people who got COVID, 185 of them had received the placebo. Only 11 had gotten the vaccine. And statistically speaking, that just doesn't happen by chance. And so they're now concluding that the vaccine is extremely effective. The other number that's quite positive is that 30 of those participants got very, very ill with COVID. One of them even died but none of those 30 were in the vaccine arm. So it does suggest that the vaccine protects against very serious illness. Yeah, and they said that it was pretty consistent across age groups, ethnicity. So that was also good. No major side effects other than the ones we've talked about before. You know, you feel a little crummy a couple days, maybe a low-grade fever or something, but it lasts only a couple days. So other than that, it's all good news. They've been also saying a lot about how effective it is at reducing severe cases as well. It's not just that it prevents you from getting it as well, but if you do happen to get it, it most likely won't be a severe case. And that was one of the big concerns with these vaccine trials. They weren't all specifically looking for severe cases, and there was a concern that maybe it might help prevent mild cases and not severe ones. But this seems to address that, and the conclusion is positive as far as we can tell. One of the big questions that remains unanswered is the long-term effectiveness. I know we're rushing this thing out because we need it right away. So that's going to be kind of determined at a later time. And, you know, if anything, you can still get a booster shot, they say. When do they plan on uh, approving all of this? Uh, I think uh, December 10th, 
the yep. FDA advisory board is going to talk about Pfizer, and then a week later they'll talk about Moderna. Exactly. And we don't know how long the FDA will take to issue its EUA, emergency use authorization, after that, but we expect they'll move very quickly on that. And it would be hard to imagine them not approving it at this point. When it comes to the amount of doses that are going to be ready by the end of this year and next year, what are we looking at? They're hoping to have 40 million by the end of this year, which means vaccinating 20 million Americans this calendar year. They're going to start with healthcare workers, the people at most risk for catching COVID, and the people who are sacrificing themselves to help the rest of us. It looks like there's a meeting tomorrow to confirm that, but those are likely to be the first people in line, then followed by nursing home residents and others who are at risk. Next year, hopefully the sky's the limit. Both companies, uh, Pfizer says it can make as much as a billion doses next year. They've promised $100 to the U.S with some expansion possible. Moderna has also promised $100 million total to the U.S. So theoretically, we really do need at least another one or two vaccines. So hopefully some of the others coming along behind them will also be effective. But theoretically, we're in pretty good shape, certainly in the U.S. Let's talk a little bit about the confidence in vaccines because, you know, we've been seeing polls, a lot of people saying they maybe not want to take the first batch of these vaccines. They want to wait a little while. But we have to remind everybody, I know this is going very fast and it's being bolstered by Operation Warp Speed and all that, but these are the gold standard of vaccine trials. The first two that have gone through this already, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, they've done the extensive phase three trials and all that. So people should have some confidence in this. They've followed the same practice. The only reason they're asking for emergency use authorization instead of full approval is that they're not following the the people out. As you mentioned, they're not following people out for two years, which would be the standard. And again, we'll find out later if we need to add a booster shot to get us to two years or not. But in general, the vaccine trials have been held to exactly the same standards, and they're very large trials. Moderna's 30,000 people, Pfizer's 44,000, so and the others are on the same order of magnitude. So they really have tested them in a lot of people. Safety The FDA required the companies to wait until at least half of the participants had been out two months from their shot. Generally, if you're going to have a bad reaction to a vaccine, it's going to be in the first six weeks. So eight weeks buys them time to make sure there are no health problems. And at this point, no major long-lasting health problems have emerged. So we have these two main vaccine candidates right here in Moderna and Pfizer. Those are mRNA vaccines. And then we also have the other major one, the AstraZeneca vaccine that is also doing very well at the same time right now. There's some questions that have arisen over the AstraZeneca vaccine. Their results, they released some results last week, interim results that raised a lot of questions. They found that for the most part, the vaccine was 60% effective, which would have sounded great. The FDA was looking for only more than 50% effective. But now that we have these two options that are 90 plus percent effective, a 60 doesn't sound so great anymore. <laughs> right. um, and they suggested that one way of manipulating the doses might be more effective, but that data was very small. So we need to wait and see what happens with the rest of the trial. All right. Well, we'll see what happens next. Maybe Monday we'll get another update as it's been coming. So we'll (laughs) we'll wait to find out. (laughs) Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So there's going to be a huge task, I think, for this economic team. And it's important to have people coming in who sort of know the lay of the land, folks who have worked at the National Economic Council, worked at the Council of Economic Advisors, and really understand. Joining us now is Kate Davidson, economic policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. The Joe Biden transition continues. 
Last week, we heard the nominees for his national security team. This week and over the weekend, we started to get a better idea of the people he's nominating. We heard about his communications team. And on Monday, he announced his picks for his senior economic team. He's planning to nominate Janet Yellen to be the first woman to lead the Treasury Department. We're hearing other names like Nira Tandon to be the Director of Office of Management and Budget and a few other names. So Kate, help us walk through some of these names because not everybody has heard these names before. And then beyond that, how will this team help Joe Biden run the economy? So I think that one of the most important things to point out that these people all have in common is that they all have a lot of experience um, and particularly experience during the last economic crisis. Um, a bunch of them were in the White House or at the Fed or in various roles in the government sort of grappling with the fallout from the 2008 financial crisis and, and the recession that followed. So I think that that is going to be really important because when the Biden administration comes in on January 20th or 21st, after the inauguration, they'll be facing an economy that right now appears to be slowing. It rebounded pretty quickly over the summer, faster than some people expected. But job growth is slowing. And obviously, we have a surge, a pretty uncontrolled spread of the virus across the country, which is not good. We also have a bunch of economic relief programs that are expiring at the end of the year. So there's going to be a huge task, I think, for this economic team. And it's important to have people coming in who sort of know the lay of the land, folks who have worked at the National Economic Council, worked at the Council of Economic Advisors, and really understand, I think, how to approach some of these problems. Are we seeing any issues with regards to being confirmed, some of these nominees being confirmed? I keep seeing a lot about Neera Tandon. She would be the director of the Office of Management and Budget. And there's kind of criticism on both sides, from the left and from the right, with regards to her nomination. Among a lot of the names we're hearing, hers is the one that's likely to draw the most, I guess, controversy. As you said, right, she's drawn criticism on the right. She's sparred with Republican senators. She's the head of the Center for American, American Progress. She is a big, um, you know, Hillary Clinton advisor, you know, worked closely with Hillary Clinton during her campaign. And so is definitely part of, I guess, what you consider the Democratic establishment. But that doesn't mean she's sort of beloved by all on the left. She's, she's also sparred with progressives. She kind of had this high profile back and forth with Bernie Sanders during the 2016 campaign. So you're seeing, you know, I guess, especially on Twitter, where these things kind of tend to bubble up, you're seeing some opposition there on the left. I don't know how reflective that is of what the general public might think of her, how people might vote. But I think there's reason to think that she might face some confirmation problems. But then you have people like Janet Yellen, who's the nominee to be Treasury Secretary. And we've seen just kind of across the board praise for her selection, just because she is so experienced. She is a really credible voice on all these issues. She obviously has a deep background in economics. She was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, first woman to lead the Fed. She would be the first woman to lead the Treasury Department. And I think it's pretty unlikely. She got Republican support when she was confirmed to be Fed chair. She'll face some opposition, of course, but you've seen Republicans coming out and saying that she is, you know, it's hard to deny that she's a very well-qualified pick. So that's sort of the other side of this. I think that some of these other folks who are being nominated, maybe Neera Tannen will take some of the heat off of those people, and they should be able to move through. Taxes are going to be another big thing for the Biden administration. He said he's wanting to raise taxes on corporations, households earning more than $400,000 a year, capital gains as well. You know, Republicans aren't going to go for any of that stuff. 
That's right. I think it will be important. This is probably a challenge for the economic team for Janet Yellen and perhaps for, for Brian Dees, who's expected to be announced as the National Economic Council director. They'll have to figure out, I mean, we don't know, first of all, we don't know the results of the Georgia Senate runoff. That could change everything. We don't really know if, if Democrats will control the Senate or not. That could change things. But clearly, even if they do, it's going to be really close. You're going to need some Republican support to do some of the things they're talking about. So they'll have to be looking at and figuring out other ways is perhaps to change tax policy through enforcement or through regulation. There's some things they can do there. But right, I think it will be difficult, if not impossible, to do some of the sweeping overhaul that the president-elect campaigned on when it comes to raising taxes on the wealthy. Joe Biden has said that he wants his cabinet to be one of the most diverse in history and reflect the American people. We saw it with his national security team We saw it with his all-female communications team, and we're seeing it with his economic team as well. I mean, it's really something that he's holding true or trying to hold true to, at least. That's absolutely right. So just within the economic team, I mentioned Janet Yellen. She'd be the first woman treasury secretary. Neera Tandon would be the first woman of color to lead the Office of Management and Budget. You have Cecilia Rouse, who will be nominated as the chairwoman of the Council of Economic Advisors. She would be the fourth woman to lead the CEA, but first woman of color. And you also have Wally Ayademo. I think I'm saying his last name right after work on that. I cover treasury. He would be the first deputy treasury secretary of color. But I think also really important to emphasize that, again, these people are just really highly regarded and viewed as generally really well qualified for these jobs as well. Um, I mean, hopefully that goes without saying, but I think it's important to note. Kate Davidson, economic policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. We've tried to keep this sort of the the logistics as simple as possible, knowing that going forward that we might actually end up having another lockdown and being forced to close. Joining us now is Heather Haddon, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks so much. We're seeing rising cases and new rounds of lockdowns and restrictions all over the country. Specifically, the restaurant industry is facing a lot of those lockdowns and restrictions, and it's uh, spelling a lot of trouble for them. These are major parts of local communities, business owners, they employ a lot of people in local communities, and they've been seeing a lot of these restrictions affect them specifically. And there's a lot of restaurants throughout the country that are defying these orders right now because they say they just can't stay open if this type of stuff continues. So Heather, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing out there. Many states now, a growing number of states, have reinstituted indoor dining bans. Some states even have outdoor dining bans now to try to curb the spread of the virus as it continues to grow. And that's really impacting restaurants that had counted on having indoor dining during the winter to help them survive. So a lot of these restaurants had spent heavily on plexiglass dividers or air purification systems, you know, spending thousands of dollars to try to make their premises safe to house diners during the colder months and now they can't do that any longer so some restaurants you know are just fed up and say you can go ahead and try to find me but i'm going to just keep serving people indoors and that's a better way for me to survive because there's just so much cost that has been sunk into these indoor changes at this point that they're taking that gamble thousands of dollars that some of these restaurants have put to use to make these changes And it's all for naught right now. There was one restaurant owner, Mike Coughlin in Illinois, who you spoke to that said, uh, you pay my bills, you pay my taxes, you pay my employees, 
and then I'll close. And I, that's the sentiment that a lot of restaurant owners have. They feel like they're being scapegoats in a lot of this. Yeah, they really do, especially because the science about transmission is still difficult to pin down. I mean, this is a novel coronavirus. We do know that transmission tends to happen indoors with people in close contact who are not wearing masks over long periods of time, which certainly restaurants could be culprit there. But the industry is pushing back and saying, you know, the studies that have come out, they don't depend on scientific contract tracing. Typically, they have small sample sizes, there's flaws. So they really say that they're being unfairly targeted here. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. There's a study out of Stanford. There's some studies that I guess the CDC has done. And they do point to indoor dining as a, a major point of transmission for COVID. As you mentioned, you're kind of in an enclosed space, poor ventilation, all of that. But there's little science really being offered to prove that outbreaks are happening in outdoor settings. I know that was a huge issue in Los Angeles, specifically when the new round of lockdown said, well, no indoor dining, no more outdoor dining either. So there's, as you mentioned, just kind of not enough there for at least the restaurants and the industry groups to say, okay, we are a major factor here. They certainly are pushing back at those studies and just saying the science really is lacking here and we're being unfairly targeted. We are taking all these safety measures to try to keep distance outside and inside. We're sanitizing, we're investing in those dividers and we need to operate to be able to survive. I mean, a lot of them we're hoping that there'll be some kind of stimulus by now in Congress. You know, some of these got PPP loans early in the crisis, but they're all gone. And so they really say they have little choice to do this if they want to survive. And one of the interesting things that we see happening also is the appetite, for lack of a better word, from the public is there for restaurants, indoor and outdoor dining. When the restrictions are lifted, people want to go out and support their local community, their local restaurants there. So the public themselves, you know, want this stuff to be open. And what we're seeing is lawsuits from restaurant owners, from industry groups. How have some of those been playing out? So there's a growing number of lawsuits that are being filed in various states, some involving industry groups, some involving restaurants, like you said, basically trying to challenge these state guidelines and these state orders and that they're not being executed properly and they need stays on these orders. So uh, one case in Illinois, a local judge did give them a stay, then the state appealed. That appeal was, so then the ruling was overturned. Now they're trying to take it to the state's highest court because they really think that they have a case here and the National Restaurant Association and the State Restaurant Association has been supporting that because they think that this is in their interest and in the interest of their members. The big worry is obviously that a lot of businesses are going to close because of this. Throughout the entire pandemic, it's been really touchy for restaurants, large and small. In your conversations for this story, what have restaurant owners told you? I'm sure you walk around your community and see vacant storefronts. I mean, restaurants are closing, typically the smaller ones, independent ones at this stage. But, you know, some big chains have also taken the pandemic as an opportunity to close some underperforming locations, just saying it's better to clean that slate than try to make these work because there just is less demand. I mean, demand has improved certainly from the worst part of the pandemic early on, but it's just nowhere near what it was at the same time last year, especially with the holidays. Heather Haddon, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.